This morning we're going to be in John chapter 8, starting with verse 12. And the last time we saw the first, really, 12 verses, we're going to overlap with verse 12 again. It's such an important verse. It's a, really a focal or a transitioning verse. Uh, but we looked at the woman in this instance who was caught in adultery, the religious leaders trying to set up Jesus in a predicament, so they were searching for this. And we went through it. So if you weren't here, please get the, um, go onto the website, get it for free, get the CD. It really was a very powerful portion of Scripture. We see the mixture that God provides with justice and grace at the same time. Not an easy task, but God can do anything. And today, Jesus presents himself as the light of the world. Now, he gives us an opportunity to not walk in spiritual darkness or enslavement to sin. And I've had this, what I call, quote, you don't have to, unquote, conversation. You don't have to live like that. You don't have to treat yourself like that. You don't have to do that. To yourself, You know, God wants so much more f- for you. You don't have to think that about yourself. You know, he doesn't want us to be in that position. He loves us. And, and I think that this is one of those concepts, God's love, that we have to continually be reminded of. So starting with verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, if the antecedent or the Uh, incident that took place prior to what Jesus is saying here is this situation with the woman. Again, religious leaders. At the time, it was an establishment. They were cold. They looked down on the common folk. Uh, There was a caste system in the religious system. So this woman was just a pawn in their chess game. They take her. They seize her. They bring her in front of Jesus. Of course, Jesus says to them, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Um, From the oldest to the youngest, they departed. And this woman was free. However, he said to her, he warned her, don't sin anymore. Now, we've heard this in the media. We've heard it in the political arena. Well, he who's without sin cast the first stone. But really, importantly, the last thing he said to her was don't sin anymore. So we have to forget that there's a, we don't forget that there's a balance there. So if this is the dilemma for her not to sin anymore, well, what would we ask? Jesus, Lord, well, what shall I do? Well, how shall I live? Well, what do I do from here? Well, this is the answer to her question. The only way not to walk in darkness is to follow Christ. And that is true for us as well. It's the only way we can keep from walking in darkness. Though we try, though we do rituals, though we do rites, though we memorize prayers, the only way not to walk in darkness is to follow the Lord, period. Now, let's just go, and I want to take you, before we go into spiritual light, I want to take us through something we're all familiar with, which is physical light. So I'm going to start with the Bible and then move into how we perceive light with our eyes, and then we'll talk about spiritual light. So in the Bible, light is used as a metaphor for God's attributes. You can see it all throughout the Old Testament. His perfection, his guidance, his sinlessness, his glory, and understanding. God is the source of all wisdom and understanding. If you look at the temple system, the way the Jews had set everything up by the commandment of Moses from God. The candelabra was lit. It was to be burning continually, day and night, day and night, as long as the temple was in existence, signifying God's light or symbolizing. Um, During the Feast of Sukkot, which we covered, or tabernacles, there was a lighting ceremony, which was a big part of that. 
And Jesus, of course, claimed that light for himself. He says, I'm the light of the world. Now, let us look at the physical eye and physical light. So this morning, I hope you're up for it. I hope you had your coffee because we're going to have a biology lesson. <laughs> I actually love biology. But the organ of the eye in the film of the retina that's inside of the eye, the eyeball, uh, you have rods and cones, which are responsible for color differentiation and light perception as well as depth, depth perception. You also have the photosens photosensitive ganglion, which are embedded again, in, and of course this all happened by accident over millions of years, this perfection, <laughs> right? So, I'm being facetious, I don't believe that. So the photosensitive ganglion actually controls almost the camera, the camera aperture of the eyeball, the shutter, you know, the pupil, how big it is based on how much light is hitting those, that ganglion. So it, it sets the, the, the light coming in through the size of the pupil. Uh, what it also does is it regulates melatonin in the brain, which is responsible for sleep and, it, and the entrainment of the body clock. Now, as I look around, I don't see any cyclopses here. We all have two eyes. Right? We don't have one in the middle of the forehead like those movies. What does two eyes do for us? Number one, it gives us a better field of vision. It helps us with our per peripheral vision. What it also does is it gives us better depth perception. And when I was studying this, I'm like, oh, and this and that. I mean, I had four pages of notes, and I'm like, this, this can't do this. You know, I got to really compact it here. But the eye is an amazing organ. And the muscles of the eye, you know, that stereo, uh, stereotactic vision. It, the way it tracks things and keeps you from getting blurred vision with the two eyeballs, you know, how it hones in on one, one uh, picture, so to speak, that it sends to the brain via the optic nerve. So that's what you have with the eye. Now let's look at physical light matched to the physical eye. Physical light. It gives us information about our surroundings. It teaches us and helps us to negotiate our way around our environment. Just do this for a moment. I, I submit to you that we take sight for granted. You know, we do a lot with sight. Even as I'm walking around, I know there's a step here, and if I walk too far, I'm going to fall down the steps and look foolish. So my eyes are looking up, down, they're focusing in on your faces. Uh, the light is coming and helping my eyes negotiate my environment. So if you do this example, just to prove that we take sight for granted, is get up one morning, put on a blindfold, and start your day. Now, don't drive and then blame me when you get pulled over, okay? <laughs> But, you know, be careful. I guarantee within the first half hour, even making your breakfast or trying to get ready for work, you're going to have trouble. Why? Because we take sight and light for granted. Light also helps us to regulate our circadian rhythms of the body. Again, via the brain, the pineal gland, and the melatonin release. What it also does is if it's from the sun, it provides warmth and photosynthesis. Isn't that amazing? Every day we wake up and we take this for granted. Now let's switch to spiritual light, because that's really what the topic of this morning's sermon is about. If you turn to John 1, verses 3 through 5, and we covered this in the first chapter, the disciple John says, All things were made through him, meaning Jesus, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. I like that. I mean, it's so true. 
When Jesus came, he said, I want everybody to be saved. I want everybody to go to heaven. I want everybody to have a great life. I want everybody to have abundant life. And the world said, yay, we're so excited you came. We're all going to do it. No. The world is in darkness. The world's been in darkness for a long time. We've learned to live in a sinful world. We've learned to live as sinful beings. And then even compare our moralities and say, at least I'm not a murderer. And when the light came into the world, the darkness didn't comprehend it. What are you talking about? The concepts were foreign to humankind. Jesus took some three plus years to explain spiritual concepts to a dark world. We move on to 1 John 5 through 7. Just two supporting scriptures here. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. It says, This is the message which we have heard, the disciples, the apostles, from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, we stop there. How many times do you hear, I have my own relationship with God. I love God. Based on what? Based on how he receives our love or based on a fanciful or romantic opinion or what we think of is loving God. So if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The Bible can be very cutting. You know, we're, we can look at this and say, gee, I, I've, I've been lying for a long time. I, I haven't really walked in the light. I haven't really loved God based on what the scripture says. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's amazing because even the breaking of fellowship has to do with uh, sin, has to do with not walking in the light, even between believers, strife and, and issues that come from sin. Right? So this is what we're looking at. And here's the good news is that all this is attainable. Well, Pastor Joe, see, what I like to do is paint a picture that's, that's gloomy in a sense that we can't do it on our own. And then give us the good news of how Christ allows us these things to walk in the light, to have fellowship, good fellowship with other believers, to be listening to God every day and having him lead us by his Holy Spirit. That's his desire for our lives. And it's available to everybody here, bar none. You're sitting there thinking, well, it can't be me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm doing now. Forget about it. It's a lie. That's a lie. Because God wants so much better for you. God is the source of all truth, all understanding, all wisdom. And as our spiritual light helps to guide us in the physical world, okay, our physical light helps to guide us in the physical world, spiritual light helps to guide us not only in this physical world, but in the life to come. There's a double benefit there. Jesus said, he who follows me. What does it mean to follow? Well, I, Pastor Joe, you know, is he going to reappear and I can just kind of follow him around everywhere? No. Follow means to, to join, to accompany as an attendant, or to be a disciple, and we'll talk more of that. Are we following the Lord? This morning, are we walking in darkness? Even if we deny that, Pastor Joe, you don't understand, my business is doing really well. I'm happy. How could you say I'm walking in darkness? It's very simple. In the physical realm, darkness is the absence of light, that's all. We have flashlights that when we turn them on, right, they work. But there's no such thing. No one's ever invented a dark light. Do you realize that? There's not a device with a battery that you can hit the switch and everything goes black. You can shut the lights off, but darkness remains the absence of light. So it's, light is the one that has the powerful concept. 
Now, in the spiritual world, it's the same thing. The further we are away from God, the more in darkness we walk. The more in darkness we walk, the further we are away from God. 13. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. He's having this discussion with the religious spiritual establishment at the time. And they took an opportunity to dismantle his absolute teachings. Now, as a believer, you may run into somebody who says to you, and they like to play these little logic games with you, and they say, well, do you believe in moral absolutes? Yes, I do. Well, there's no such thing as moral absolutes. And then you would ask them, is that an absolute statement? You know, Are you saying there's no absolutes? Are you absolutely sure that there are no absolutes? It's simple logic. It just makes sense. So they're trying to dismantle his argument. And the first attack is, you're only one witness. Again, they didn't see the deity in him. So you're just a man. You only have one witness. That's the assault. And the irony is that the father and son helped to create the law because man is sinful and lies, right? Part of the law is to preserve the truth and to preserve God's standards. So they're speaking to the one that helped to craft the law for us so we can follow in line and see our guilt and see our sin and see our need for a savior. So that's, you know, I'm sure now they got it all straight wherever they are. He says, you don't know where I come from and where I go. Again, this is proof that the religious system didn't understand spiritual concepts. Verse 15. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. So he says to them, you judge, you religious leaders judge according to the flesh. You're judging according to appearance. You're judging based on your physical eyes. That's all it is. Whatever image is received into your eyes, you're making a determination. You're not judging with your spiritual eyes. The temporal, no Holy Spirit, no spirit involved in this judgment. And this point can never be overstated, especially in the church. Right? As church people, if somebody new comes in, we don't want to judge them with our physical eyes. That's a big mistake. We don't know who they are, what they came from, what their problem is. We're called to love them and to win them to Christ and help them to grow in Christ. So judging is very, very important that we understand that concept. So how did they look at Jesus? Well, he grew up in, in poverty from a poor family. Uh, the sacrifice that I think Mary provided was two turtle doves, and that was a poor man's sacrifice. So this is what you have. He was unattractive, I submit to you. Read Isaiah 53. He had no form or comeliness that we should desire him. What would we say in society? He needs to get his teeth bleached. He needs to get his hair cut. He needs to get that beard trimmed. He needs to put on all the newest fads and robes because he's not looking the way a Messiah should look. Again, that's our Western mentality. See, when Jesus took the form of a man, his appearance was not important. Nobody would look at him and say, wow, he's attractive. That would have been a distraction. The Son of God took a form that was not attractive. So I guarantee you all those pictures that we have of Jesus, that real handsome Jesus, it's probably not what he looked like. They looked at him and they saw uneducated. Well, you can go to any school you want, but we don't see you on the roster for our schools, for our seminaries, okay? 
no good. They looked at him, they saw that he wasn't one of the socialites, and he was a perceived lawbreaker because he healed people and made them whole on the Sabbath. They were judging according to the flesh. How do we judge a situation? When we see with our eyes a situation, do we ever stop and say, you know, what does the Lord think about this? Or I'm just going to take this and I'm going to run with it. Are we looking with our physical eyes? Or are we looking with our spiritual eyes? Because our physical eyes cannot perceive the things of the Spirit. Verse 17. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19 spoke about witnesses. And it's really sad because one person can make a false accusation against another person. The idea is hopefully that if there's more witnesses, that there's an honest um, understanding of a particular situation if somebody is going to be uh, punished by the law. So two or three witnesses, the law says, and it's ironic because the Trinity is three, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, even in our jurisprudence system, conspiracy is, is an offense, it's a crime. To get together and pretend something happened and it didn't, you can actually be punished by the law. So even our jurisprudence system looks at this and says, witnesses are very important. Even though God is the source of the law and outside of it, he also fulfills the law and he can work within its framework. Verse 19. Then they said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Where is your father? Here's the second assault on the Lord. They could not see the incarnate God. They could not see that God came down in the form of a man, even though it was in their scripture, Isaiah 9:6. They heard the stories and the rumors of Mary and Joseph, though, no doubt. Where's your father? Who's your father? Who are you talking about? Let's, let's, you know, let's split hairs here. They probably thought this was Jesus' Achilles' heel. Well, Mary was pregnant, and Joseph and Mary were not married yet, so you know, kind of Joseph did the honorable thing, but he's, he's the son of fornication. Again, they completely missed Isaiah 7, 14, where it says in Hebrew, the Alma, the unmarried virgin, shall conceive. Well, how is that? That's an oxymoron. How does that happen? because she was with child of the Holy Spirit. See, they were so enraged, and they took such a, a strong stance against him, because he was cutting into their, uh, you know, the crowds were starting to follow Jesus and not them anymore. The clock was ticking. We've got to get rid of him. You know, they were so furious. They were so angry that Scripture went out the window. And you know what? Sometimes that happens today. Now, these were religious leaders. Jesus said, don't do what they do, but listen to what they say. Why? Because they memorized the law. Follow God's law. As believers today, what do we do when we get excited about a situation? What do we do when there's something personal that affects us? And I've seen it more times than once. God's word goes out the window. Hopefully, we come to our senses and say, you know, I handled that wrong. But it was no different here. Scripture went right out the window. In addition, he taught in the treasury. Now, if we read extra-biblical works about what happened at the time, um, there was different courts. 
there was a court of men, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, and they were like concentric circles going outward. And the treasury was by the court of the women. And when we talked about the woman who was caught in adultery, it does appear that the religious leaders brought her in front of Jesus at the court of women so they could try to make him look bad. But of course, he fixed the situation so the God was glorified and mercy was shown at the same time. And it says, no one laid hands on him. Uh, they sent officers the time before to try to catch him, and the officers came back saying nobody spoke like him. So nobody even wanted to arrest him. They just wanted to listen to him. Right? And I could just picture Jesus. It's the, the, the end of the Feast of Sukkot, and there's a lamp lighting ceremony, and there's, there's candles, and there's uh, things burning, and there's, there's light everywhere. And Jesus is the light of the world, and he's trying to help them understand who he is. You know, don't just look at the ceremony. Why do we do the things we do even in church? What are our traditions at Calvary? Is there meaning behind it? Do we understand the meaning behind what we do? When we take communion today, there's meaning behind what we do in communion. And Jesus was trying to say to them, I'm the light of the world. You're looking at those lightings and the water pouring and it looks real pretty, but you need to come to me to have life. Verse 21. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The third assault on the Lord was, will he kill himself? Now, in our society, and I like to make the differentiation between 2,000 years ago you know, across the, the oceans to the Middle East versus here in the East Coast in New Jersey in 2012. If someone says, I'm going to take my life, what do we do? We want to get them help. We want to make sure that they don't take their life because it's kind of final in that, in that sense. Back in this culture, suicide was shameful. Jesus wasn't saying he was going to kill himself. He was going to be with the Father. But... This was a, a tactic where they floated the idea to make him look bad. And you can see this if you ever watch court TV. Uh, an opposing attorney will say, well, isn't it true? And they'll just make an assertion. And the judge may scratch that comment because it's, it was unfounded uh, or sustain the objection of the opposing attorney. But it's too late. The jurors already heard the suggestion and they start playing with it in their mind. So this was designed to harm Jesus to say, well, where are you going to go? Are you going to kill yourself? But this is what the Lord wanted them to know. Number one, I am going away. And that was a picture of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And number two, you will seek me, but you can't come. You won't find me. You see, they were seeking. Does that make any sense that religious leaders were seeking Jesus? Understand this. They were seeking a Messiah. But see, they wanted the Messiah of their, their choosing. Just like today, people go to church and, you know, they go to the smorgasbord table. Well, I, I have this lifestyle and I really don't want to change, so I'm going to go to this church. You know, I believe this, and if, if this was a loving God and there wouldn't be hell, I'm going to find a church that doesn't preach on hell. Well, they didn't do anything that was much different. They were looking for a Messiah. They wanted the Messiah to come that was going to conquer the Romans so they could stay in their positions and have the Roman yoke off their back. But that's not the way it worked. So he says, you will seek me. You will seek a Messiah. You won't realize that it's me but you're going to die in your sins because of your sin of disbelief. Now, at some point, especially at funerals, everyone ponders death, and we ponder heaven. 
And if we don't know enough of the scripture and we don't really have a strong relationship with, with God, we hope that we can make it to heaven. We hope that at whatever point we die, that hopefully we're doing a good deed and God says, oh, that was great. You know, come on, come into my kingdom. The truth is, the Bible is very clear. If you know Jesus, you know that you have free passage. It's not presumptuous. You can know that you have eternal life. You can continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You see, the world looks at things a little bit differently. Two worldviews, and, and Pastor Paul covered this a few Wednesdays ago in the Psalms. There's the secular worldview and the Christian worldview. And here I'm going to make a strong case for um, God's way is the right way. I mean, that's kind of like a no-brainer. But God says that you can come through Jesus. Um, you don't have to have money. You don't have to have popularity. You don't even have to have people praying for you when you die in, into a holding place because when you die, you're immediately in paradise because Jesus died for your sins. The world looks at that and says, that's narrow-minded. That's not fair. There's so many religions out there. How can you say that? Well, it's very exclusive, but it's all inclusive. A lot of paradoxes here in that. Now, let me give you another example. Let me tell you why that's extremely fair. Because, well, everybody's watching the Olympics now, right? How fair would it be if I was in the Olympics and to get the gold, I only had to swim 25 feet? I think I could do that, okay? But Les over there has to swim 50 feet, and Ed over there has got to swim, he looks like he's in good shape, 200 feet. We all, the gun goes off, we're in different pools, and we all get the gold. Is that fair? Of course not. Different standards. See, that's the problem with the worldview of religion because everyone's doing things differently. Some religions are very tedious, very um, got to do the right thing, I got to be good, I got to purge the bad thoughts out of my head. Another religion could be the lazy man's religion. I don't really have to do anything. <laughs> but if I give money to the church, I'm in. Is that fair? Of course it's not fair. <laughs> we all get the, co- the gold but we all come through Christ. And all we have to do is believe. It's that simple. Really, Pastor Joe? Really. Sounds too good to be true. It is too good to be true. You know, the penalty was paid by Jesus so that you and I could have entrance into eternal life. Unless it's via the cross, it's in vain. And many are going to die in their sins because they refuse God's way of salvation. Now, you may say to me, but you know, Last month, I visited a church, and they called themselves Christians, and they said, well, we don't really have to believe that Jesus is God. We don't have to believe that he died on the cross. Well, the Bible is very clear. There's going to be a false ecumenical leader, Christian, probably nice robes, probably looks very holy, and he's going to come. Revelation 13 tells us. It says he had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. So his whole design was evil. His whole design is to get us all together. And say, it's okay. Any way is fine. But he spoke like a dragon because his words were damning. And there may be cults out there or pseudo-Christian beliefs that will tell you something and you might feel comfortable with it, but it's not the truth. It's, It's the Lord's way. Okay? Verse 23 and 24. He says, you are from this world or you are from beneath, but I'm from above. Now, We have to ask ourselves, are we, even as believers today, how does our life reflect to others? When our neighbors are interested in something, a higher power, when our co-workers are interested in a higher power, when they see our lives, what does it look like? I've had people ask me, well, what what is a carnal believer? 
What does it mean to be worldly or of the flesh? It just means a person who claims to be a Christian but really lives as if they really don't know the Lord. You know, they want everything the world has to offer. Hey, and the cherry on top is heaven. You know, I want to be as vicious. I want to be as calculated. I want, I want to get as much as I can out of this world, you know, step on anybody to get ahead. But, you know, I'm a Christian, so I, in, in the end I'm going to go to heaven. Carnal, worldly. I have to say this, that social media is becoming a great outlet for narcissism. <laughs> you look at some of these Facebook posts. Well, let me show you 500 pictures of me. And let me tell you what I did this morning, what I ate for breakfast, what I did for lunch, where I am now on the computer. My goodness. Uh, You know, it's narcissistic outlet. Oh, and by the way, I'm a Christian. (laughs) Could you tell? You know what I'm saying? It's all about me. Actually, they found, it's a good truth serum, too. They've actually uh, caught some criminals who've admitted on Facebook they bragged about a certain crime, and, and the authorities, you know, figured out, they caught up to them, and they got arrested for it. So it's good truth serum as well. The bottom line is this. Are we of the world, the flesh and the devil? Are we about ourselves? You know, and and that's, that's an honest assessment. When we go home, we have to ask ourselves, is, is it all about me? Is everything I do just focused on me? You see, um, or we're going through, and I like to train our leaders to, uh, we have some series and we go through different trainings and different conferences, uh, how to counsel people, etc., It was one particular uh, teaching that spoke about depression. Uh, Some is chronic, some is post-traumatic, and you you can't really put it all in one category, but there are some forms of depression where it says that the person personalizes everything. So if you're the type of person that's me-centered and you're always personalizing everything, they got it in for me, well, they must have done that because they didn't like my post. I mean, we can get insanely enwrapped in ourself, and that leads to depression. These people don't like me. You know, I know it, I can feel it. It's not based on anything empirical. It's just a feeling. Leads to depression. The more we're focused on ourselves, the more we will spiral out of control because we weren't designed for that. We were designed to be other-centered. We were designed to be, to be believers in Christ. We were designed to reflect his light to the world, to the unsaved world. You see? So the more we think about ourselves, the more we become depressed. I kind of went off on a tangent there. Where was I? <laughs> The bottom line is, let's not just look at the people that Jesus is rebuking. Let's take some of this and look at it for ourselves. Verse 25. Then they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Who are you? This is coming from the shepherds of Israel. And today, men can have titles, they can have attire, they can have name tags, they can have great positions in the church and still not know him. There's a brother in this church who sends me texts, and I don't know where he gets them from, but uh, it speaks about clergy, ministers in New Jersey, either doing illegal things or sexual sins, getting caught, and I'm looking at my, my phone, and I'm like, wow, that, you don't even see it in the news. And this is just in New Jersey. How do you get continually caught up in that stuff and know the Lord? You know, the two things are, are you know, children, and it's, it's bad. It really is. It's disgusting is what it is. But they had their titles, they had their positions, and they didn't know the Lord. And then I would ask, 
you this question too. You know, hey, this is great. Pastor Joe's speaking about the religious system. I don't like religion either. Go, go get him, Pastor Joe. Yeah, but we need to look at this for ourselves too. Do we know him? While I wear the cross, I have a Bible at home. I have a Christian fish on my car, Pastor Joe, you know? Doesn't everybody? I'm sure I can go out to the lot and see a whole bunch of them. Doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean anything. Take your favorite actor, Brad Pitt, Denzel Washington, whoever. You can have pictures of them on your wall. You can have all their movies. You can know stats about them. But if you've never held a conversation with them, do you really know them? The answer is no. That's where relationship comes in. Same thing with the Lord. We can have all the accoutrements of Christianity. We can look at others in the church and do what they do and mimic it, but still not know the Lord. And I don't say this to condemn. I say this to encourage relationships with the Lord. And that can only bless this fellowship. If every believer here has a strong relationship with the Lord, boy, we could set the world on fire like the apostles did. We could do that. I mean, there's a community around here that are they're poor, they don't know the Lord, there's problems, there's strife, just right around this area in, in a 15-mile in a radius. Verse 28. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of Myself, But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. For I always do the things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. You lift up the Son of Man to be crucified. You will know, absolutely. In Acts 2, the Apostle Peter spoke about the resurrection. He spoke about the crucifixion. And in that day, the Bible tells us, 3,000 souls were won to Christ. That's phenomenal. Phenomenal. We know that there's going to be a national fulfillment in Zechariah 12.10, which hasn't happened yet in all of history, that the nation will look at their Messiah. It says, they will look upon me whom they have pierced. And they'll believe. They'll eventually believe. Jesus also says, I always do what pleases the Father. In the Greek lexicon, it means to please based on moral agreement. And I want to know this. If there's anybody here, can you raise your hand if you always do everything that pleases the Father? Because my hands are behind my back right now. And if you do, please let me know because I'm going to step down right now and you can take my place. You know, would you believe me if I said that? Good, you shouldn't. <laughs> this is a claim to Christ's deity. Right? And we look at verse 28 and we look at the different verses here. He keeps saying... If you you do not believe that I am he, the word he was added for emphasis in the English, but in the Greek, ego, imi, means I am, which goes back to Exodus 3, Jesus was claiming equality with God, the Father. 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Now, I can see Jesus now turning to the ones that got it and maybe challenging them a little bit more. What does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to be a disciple? We need to abide in his word. What does the word abide mean? It means to stay in a place or state, to live or to remain in God's word. It's a lifestyle. You can say to me, Pastor Joe, I'm a physical trainer. I work out every day. You know, uh, my body is my advertisement. Uh, This is what I live, eat, breathe, sleep. This is my lifestyle. That's not a bad thing. You're a physical trainer. It's what you do. You could say to me, Pastor Joe, I'm retired. 
You know, I got a good pension. I got a good 401k set up. I'm doing really good. I am living out my retirement. That's your lifestyle. It's not a bad thing. It's your lifestyle. Some shaking your head. God bless you. <laughs> uh, but this is a lifestyle of God's word. Now, remember, we don't always do everything that pleases the Father. But it's our desire to walk with him and to do things that please him and to be in that lifestyle, to abide in God's word, to remain, to stay. And that's important for us to know. 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, we hear slave and we're offended because it's a very uh, uh, blemish on American history. But you have to remember, at this time, slavery was a thriving business in the Roman Empire. So that those were very strong words, and they were intended to be strong words. Sin causes spiritual slavery. The only truth can be found in God's word, and that's the truth that can make us free. Jesus frees, but sin enslaves. Now, the world sees it the opposite way. I was just reading an article about Macaulay Culkin. Remember him, the child actor? And I don't say this to condemn. I actually feel sorry for them because I think their, their childhood is robbed from them. They have handlers and you know people that take advantage of them. But in a sense, this kid grew up in what he would consider freedom. Actually, I heard that when he was a young teen, they got him a stripper for his birthday party. So this little boy, they were just exposing him to whatever the world said will make you, if it feels good, do it. He was making money, hand over fist. He had actual financial autonomy from his parents at one point. He made more than his parents did. He got involved in drugs. He got involved in the partying lifestyle. And when you're in that, you think, this is great. I'm free. You know, some of us, we go to college and we get a job and, you know, we want to be away from our parents. We want that freedom to make decisions. Do you realize that freedom can put you back into slavery? It can put you into bondage. I did that. I graduated from college. I was out of the house. I was making good money. I was free to do whatever I wanted. But I was a slave to sin every weekend, you know, and then every Monday morning getting sick and saying, why did I do that? But starting it all up again with, on Thursday. This was my life. I was free. People could look at me and say, wow, he's got the life. Got girlfriends, he goes to parties, he's popular. I was the most miserable person you ever met because I was a slave to my sin. These childhood stars are casualties. They're used and abused by their handlers and then they're discarded when they're not useful anymore. You need to pray for Hollywood. They think that they have freedom, but they don't. They're all in chains. They just don't see the spiritual shackles that are on them. I've heard some say, it's my turn. I'm going to take care of number one. I'm going to live life for myself. Welcome to prison, and here's a complimentary pair of, of, of spiritual shackles for you. In closing, I just want to group some of these verses together, starting with verse 12. Jesus says this, I am the light of the world, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. 31. 
If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Look at all the things that the Lord offers us. 34. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin, and this is a lifestyle of sin, by the way, is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. The Romans were brutal to their slaves, by the way. They, when they were conquered by Rome, and you know the, the most physically fit would be taken as slaves and put on the auction block, they had no life. They had no future. And they couldn't even hope to escape because the Romans were brutal. So understand the power in this. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Do you want that? You who walked in off the street and are here for the first time hearing this, do you want that? And it gets better. John 10, you know, I have come to give them life and life more abundantly. You know what holds us up is our free will. Because we have all these questions about, about how I want to still direct my life. I still want to steer the ship. i just give you a, a funny little example and then we'll close it up. I was, <laughs> I was working on my computer on Saturday, and I do my message on a Word document. And uh, when something goes wrong in my house or I can't find something, um, we have this pair of pets. And our cat jumps up on the table, and she'll throw things on the floor. And the dog is more than happy to grab what's on the floor and run and take it and hide it. So stuff got to be nailed down or put somewhere because God knows what's going to happen to it. So somewhere late afternoon and Saturday, I had all my plans. I divide my work, my time with my wife, my son, my free time, and I had my plans for Saturday. Right around 2, 3 o'clock, I lost my entire message. I don't know. I was going to blame the animals. Maybe they hit the jump drive on the floor. I don't know. But it was gone. I had to start all over again, and I was frustrated. <laughs> oh, some of you feel sorry for me. Oh, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> so... So I go outside, and I'm praying, and I'm like, Lord, I'm so frustrated. It was a good message. This is my life. And my wife looks out the window and goes, oh, there he goes again. <laughs> Listen, I got bad days, too. I plan to do this. It's a beautiful day. I feel like such a slave to that computer. And then the light bulb went off. You serve me. But you don't know what, what I prepared through the pulpit through the Spanish ministry, through the missions that we support. Man, he put me in my place like he always does. You know, 20 years ago, I was a slave to Joe, and I was miserable. If you owed me $2, I would write it down, and I'd chase you down so I could get that $2 back. I was stingy. I was ornery. Yes, I don't know why she said I do, you know? She asked herself that question, too. But the bottom line is, I serve the living God. He, he quickly changed my attitude. I went back to the computer. I'm like, all right, Lord, whatever it is, it is. You love them more than I do. If it stinks, you know, whatever. <laughs> Put it back together for memory. God is good. And you know, now I was so worried as, as a non-believer. So many times I was witness to, and my biggest fear was that I wasn't going to be in control anymore. But you know what? In my whole life, I wasn't in control anyway. And I didn't know what to do when crisis happened. I always handled it the wrong way. Listen, whether you're very young or you're very advanced in years, 
God has a plan for you. He wants you to be free. He wants you to have that knowledge. He wants you to have that wisdom. He wants you to affect the people in Jamesburg or the people in church or the people in your age group or the people that are struggling, the drug culture, whatever it may be. There are so many people that are hurting out there. God wants to use you. Do you want to be made free to serve him? I'll leave you with this. Jesus is the light of the world. He elucidates everything spiritual. He who follows Jesus and can do that, by the way, it's attainable this morning, will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so awesome. As we sit here and we marvel in your word and look at these conversations and just know that your words have power and the things that you desire for us this morning and in our lives, Lord, you know, we just, (laughs) the light of the world you know, fountains of living water, whatever the case may be. I just pray right now, if there's anybody this morning who, maybe they're, they're excited, maybe they're charged up by the message, but they don't know where to start.